everyone and welcome to the DRW interview and today we have Sarah Fogelson and you all have probably heard a lot about her because I've mentioned her throughout podcasts whether you're in the private Facebook group but she plays a huge part in how I got into early childhood environmental ed and so I want her to take an, a moment to introduce herself and the work that she's been doing um, and how she got into this field too. So welcome, Sarah. Thanks, thanks so much for having me. Um, yeah, I am Sarah and yeah, my, so I'm currently in a funky role um, working in environmental education and hopefully fingers crossed early childhood education still um, <laughs> um, because I'm working at an outdoor school um, and summer camp program and I'm in the development role. So I'm doing marketing and fundraising, which if you had asked me when I graduated with a degree in environmental education, if I would ever be like managing social media as part of my job or like writing fundraising, no, I would never have said that I was doing these things in part because I'm so passionate about environmental education. Um, and it's, it's taken a lot of like thinking and thought work and being like, no, like what I am doing is still environmental education um, because one, most of our programs are nonprofit, a lot of them are anyway, and they need funding. And like, we can't, we cannot charge our, um, our students and our visitors the full price of what it would cost. Like it would just be way too exclusive. Um, and so that means that we need to fundraise and someone needs to fundraise. And ideally that person understands not just the mission of the organization, but also is able to do a little bit of environmental education with the donors and with the supporters, like kind of bring them along is I've realized a lot my role now is like, I'm trying to teach, you know, a predominantly 55 and upset of why the environment is important and why it's important to have a nature connection and a connection to your community, what that looks like for kids and what leadership skills look like for kids and why it's important that we start young and why it's important that we have Know, progression across all of the ages. Um, and so that's what, that's what I'm doing now. Um, like I said, not where I thought I was going to be. Um, I got into environmental education from summer camp. I was a girl, lifelong Girl Scout and went to Girl Scout summer camp and loved it. Went through the counselor training program. I was an apprentice. It was wonderful. And I didn't think it was a job I could do for the rest of my life. I didn't know it was a job I could do for the rest of my life. Um, and I was going to community college and I thought I was gonna be a journalism major and tell other people's stories. I was really excited about that. And then ended up discovering that like the culture of the newsroom, like it's just not, not for me. Um, and so I dropped my journalism courses but it's minus credits. So I picked up a class on career search. And like the first conversation I had with that career counselor was like, well, what do you like to do? And I told them I like summer camp. Like, I love working summer camp. I wish I could do it all the time. And they're like, oh, like that's a job. And I was like, what? <laughs> Come again? And they're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Put in these search terms and they like put in the search terms for me. And all of a sudden I started learning about outdoor education and environmental education and recreation degrees and all of these things. And it was through that class and that career counselor that I discovered the field of environmental education. Um, oh. And I discovered that I had both received environmental education as a kid and as a camp counselor was already doing it and I was like oh 
like this is this is great this is all the things I love to do and like all the reasons I love to do it and like this these are my people and so from there is how I ended up you know I went to Prescott College as an undergrad um got my degree in environmental education and thought I was just gonna like go off and save the world because like you know I'm like 22 I'm like, yeah I'm gonna save the world <laughs> not how it works um but I graduated into the recession in 2009 like so many of us yeah and there weren't a lot of jobs to be had in the wow. field um so i ended up at legoland california in my hometown um <laughs> and for the very first time i worked with kids ages five and under i'd literally never worked with tiny humans before um and it was during that time i drove there's a ride that it's it's like the safari tour at disneyland but it's a boat and you drive the boat around the lake and you're supposed to give this tour of all these like Lego creations and like tell everyone about like, and this is the Taj Mahal made out of Legos and it's made out of X number of Legos and took this amount of time to build. Like I used to know all those things. Um, and it killed my little hippie heart, but it was also like a beautiful wetland. Right. Oh my God. <laughs> and so my tours ended up being like, a speed run of the Lego tour. And then I'd also be like, and over here is a snow egret, like birds. Um, and it was great. It was so much fun. And I loved the and I loved the questions that the tiny humans asked. Um, like they had the best questions and they were able to like jump from being like, yeah, Legos are cool. This is great. And they'd be like, whoa, that great blue heron just ate a fish out of the lake. And I'm like, yeah. And so from there, I discovered early childhood education, went back um, to school at the community college again and got my credits I needed to become um, a master teacher in California in early childhood education and worked for a little bit at the lab school there at that community college um, before deciding to run away to the mountains. And I actually came here to Pathfinder Ranch where I am now and was a teaching naturalist and doing my first love of environmental education for fifth and sixth graders. Um, eventually bounced bounced back and was like, I'm going to go back to school again and I'm going to do early childhood education. So I did that for a while and now I'm back here. So I just kind of keep doing this in and out yes. in and out of the two because they're so similar. Mm -hmm. And one of these, one of these days, I'm going to do the both of them together. Right. These days. I had a week in the summer and one, it's going to be all the time one day. One day I'm going to do early childhood EE all day, every day. And it's going to be great. And until then, I'm going to keep convincing older folks um, to, to support these programs so that we can do things like early childhood EE and we can make sure that kids are receiving the, the connection that they need and the opportunities they need to connect to nature. Um, yes. Yeah. Wow. That was kind of long. I apologize. No. It was a long road. It was a long road to get here. There's a lot of nuggets in, I'm saying nuggets, like just a lot of pieces within your story that I find really fascinating, mm -hmm. being that you graduated into the recession. Mm -hmm. And without saying that we're in a recession now, I think there's something to speak to that, because yeah. there's going to be another yet another generation mm -hmm. that is experiencing this. Yeah. Um, then I also think it's interesting that you we're working at Legoland. <laughs> it was a job. It was a paycheck. Listen, we all have those jobs. We do. 
But I also like that your connection with Girl Scouts and then having mm. like a solid advisor at your at the yeah. college really helping you realize like, wait a minute, I can really do this for a living. Mm-hmm. I think that's really powerful. And then the last piece, um, one of your other points that you have brought up was this connection between like the early childhood world and then like the other piece of like working with older kids, but also getting the older community to mm-hmm. understand yeah. why we need to invest in all of this. So I kind of want to like unpack these different spaces. Yeah. Let's do it. So the first one is that what would you say to someone that is either A, just graduating from high school or B, graduating from college? Like, how do you navigate during a time of recession? Because my experience in 2008, because I'm part of the like 9-11 generation, I was in college when 9-11 happened. But by the time I finally graduated, because I was one of those people that was kind of lost a little bit about your spirit, but my experience with the recession was very different. Mm-hmm. And I think it's because my husband was in the army, yeah. but it didn't mean that when I was looking for jobs or positions, it was still difficult, especially once yeah. I left Texas and moved to an area that was very rural. So what do you say mm-hmm. to a college student that's just graduating? Yeah. I mean, my partner's littlest sister just graduated in May. Yeah. Yeah, so she she did the same thing that he and I did um, of graduating into recession. And I mean, it's hard. Um, I think what it comes down to is just that we're sold this idea for so long while we're growing up that you're going to, you know, go to school, mm-hmm. try to get the best grades you can, you know, be on clubs, be on teams so you can get that college scholarship or not. And like, then you're going to go to college and you're going to get a degree and then you're going to graduate and then you're going to get a job. Right. And the, it's, it's very comforting as a teenager to like, kind of have that narrative there for us. And so I understand where it comes from, you know, in the history of it, it being somewhat true in the past, but the truth is that it's like, life just isn't like that. Mm -hmm. Um, And that you just need to accept that there's going to be some twists and some turns. Um, and that it's okay to take a step back if you have that opportunity you have those supports in your family to be like you know what take a step back I'm gonna move in with my parents for like however amount of time so I can get my bearings and figure out what I want to do that's okay and it's also okay if you're not in a position to do that to be like you know what I just need a job to pay the bills and I'm gonna do this thing even if I don't like it for a little while because I got I gotta make some money right both of those options are okay. And nothing you do is going to be wasted. Right. Like everything you do, everything I did at Legoland, like even though I will never clean like a 25 passenger boat again and plug it in in the rain and hope I don't get electrocuted, like that's hopefully that never happens again. Um, I still learned a lot while I was there and I learned how to interact with strangers and I learned how to strike up conversations with people. I learned how to use humor in my teaching. Um, I learned so much in that time. And I also learned what it's like to just be like, I don't hundred percent believe in what I'm doing right now, mm-hmm. but I'm still going to get up in the morning and I'm going to show up in my uniform 
and I'm going to put a smile on my face. I'm going to find things to be happy and joyful about. And as long as you have that mindset of like, whatever I'm doing right now to survive and be okay is okay. And I can find things to be happy and joyful about. Um, I think that's the main thing for folks who are now in that position that I was in, um, you know, gosh, 10 years ago, 11 years ago. Um, yeah. I feel like that's the silver lining that speaks well for today. Like we, we may not like what we're in, but yet we still have to find a way to be like, I'm going to be positive. I'm going to be present and I'm going to be happy with what I'm able to do. And that's, that's really powerful. It is. Yeah. And it's also like, it's not about toxic positivity. It's not about being like, everything's wonderful. Even though I can't eat food or pay my rent. Like, no, it's not what I'm talking about. Right. Right. But there is, there is joy to be found in everything of, even if it's that, like, you've cut everything non-essential from your grocery budget. Cause I remember doing this and being like, coffee is not essential. Wine is not essential. Ice cream is not essential. Cookies are not essential. Like these things, I don't need these things. And then on those days, those weeks when you're like, oh, I have a little extra money. I'm going to buy a pint of ice cream. Like, <laughs> yes. I celebrated my pint of ice cream yes. and that was something to be happy about. And having, talking to a friend was something to be happy about. And you know, sitting on the couch on a weekend morning and being like, oh, I have time to relax today and just like take it slow. Those are the things that you can appreciate and kind of romanticize about your life. Um, It's not that everything is wonderful all the time and it doesn't need to be, it shouldn't be. Right. Yeah. Good points. So then you talked about how you got into early childhood and connecting the environmental ed. So Mm -hmm. talk a little bit more about that because- (sighs) that's where like our worlds kind of collide. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I'm just very fascinated by that particular story because I just know for myself that was in early childhood. And then I'm like, wait a minute, I can do this outside. So I'm like, Mm -hmm. what was that moment for you when you realized like you could have the, like both worlds colliding? Yeah. I mean, I kind of, I had multiple moments. Um, one of them, I mean, shout out to my first lead teacher, Laura Pachorik, um, who I'm not in contact with anymore, but if she magically watches this, like, <laughs> Laura's amazing. Um, but she was my first lead teacher. We were in a toddler classroom. Um, and she let me be my, like, hippie, crunchy self. And we we studied uh, snails in her classroom. And she let me help her convince, like, facilities to dig out an ornamental, like, corner of our play yard and we started turning it into a garden. And at this time, like even though I had a degree in environmental education, um, I wasn't really connecting that with environmental education because I was more used to like environmental education is, you know, teaching people about the environment and like learning facts about the environment and and things like like those, like in big nature experiences. And that's that's not what was happening. Um, But I had this garden, we had this one little boy who, he had some challenges and his family had some challenges. Like life wasn't easy for them by any means. And he loved the garden. Like first off the soil was hard packed like clay when we Mm -hmm. got to it. 
And so I just like gave children tools and was like, all right, don't chop off your toe. <laughs> like, did I tell them, this is how you know that I was a new preschool teacher. I did not tell them to put on shoes. I was just like, all right, don't chop off your toe. Right. <laughs> Go forth, children. And it had to be someone else who's like, maybe they should have to wear shoes to do this. And I was like, I guess so. Um, but yeah, so we just like started digging up the soil and he was really good at it. Oh, wow. He had so much energy. Like he was the type of toddler who's like, a little more physically developed than everyone else, like a little bit taller, a little bit bulkier, like a lot more like outgoing, outward energy. Right. And it was just perfect for him. And we had a parent who worked for a nursery and bought a, brought us a bunch of like leftover petunias and impatiens. Wow. And so we started planting those and he didn't understand how to be gentle with his human friends but he understood how to be gentle with his flower friends Aww. and we got to see him start practicing being gentle with the flowers and wanting to take care of them and starting to learn that he needs to water them but you can't water them all the time right and he started wanting to share it with his mom at drop-off and at pickup and mom who's incredibly busy like she's a full-time student she's a full-time nurse trying to be a full-time mom, like single mom, like she's, she's busy. And as she starts to see this change in him and is able to hang out with him in that garden, just watching the two of them build that connection and between each other, but also between these plants in this place. That was when I think I first started to be like, oh. Wait a minute, something's the, happening here. Yeah, yeah, this, this is a part of it because that's also where kids started being curious about, I think that's why we started our snail study actually, cause like, you know, snails like plants. Um, right. And they were curious and they wanted to know these things. They want to know where this goes and what happens with this. And like the questions started coming and I started to be like, oh, like this is the entrance to the environmental education I've been used to. And it's yeah. no less important. In fact, now I'd say like, it's the most important part is that foundation whatever age you get it at. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, so like it started there and I'm in California, I was in California at that time. And at that time, at least, I'm not super sure about right now. But then part of our like licensing pieces was that you had to spend a third of your day inside, third of your day outside. And the last third, you, you know, it was like bathrooming and meal times and do it, do it where you can. Right. Um, and God bless that lead teacher, we spent as much of that last third outdoors as we could. Right. Um, and I started to realize like what I want, I, I wanted to be outside with the kids all the time. The kids wanted to be outside all the time. And towards the end of that year, when I, at the end of that year, when I was like, you know what, I'm like, I'm not probably coming back. I'm going to go do this other thing. Right. That, that teacher, I remember Laura saying to me, like, you'll be back eventually, like early childhood edge, just it's not in the place where you need to be yet. Like you'll find the program that fits you. And right. You'll, you'll you'll find the situation where this ma matches for you. At the time I was like, yeah, okay, like whatever. Right. Um, but then to like years later, probably like five years later, these I was sitting in a dean's office about to quit my master's degree program. And they were like, have you considered just switching your degree to a master's of ed in early childhood education? And have you heard about like this whole movement? Have you heard about the nature-based wow. early learning movement? And I was like, no, like tell me more. Right. And I was, I was hooked. I, it was, it was everything I had experienced as that first year teacher in a toddler classroom. And 
like mixed up with everything I love doing with my fifth and sixth graders because like because of that early childhood experience it made me so much better as an environmental educator with fifth and sixth graders because I wasn't just focused on like facts and like here's how we're going to save the world and like you need to do this and you have to recycle I was like oh we're going to do forest ecology today great we're going to start with a half hour in the forest and go play right like here's your boundaries here's a few guiding questions because you're 11 and you don't know how to just play anymore go play like go explore and bring one thing back with you yes and I honestly that that made me the educator that I am was having those experiences to be like oh the effective side like the emotional side mm-hmm. and the exploration like that is that's where it's at and that's what kids remember yes um Absolutely. yeah so the the ee influenced the early childhood and then the early childhood influenced the ee and yeah yeah i think it's interesting that you talk about with environmental ed how you learned it was like teaching it with a lens facts versus like the experience and I think that's really interesting because I don't come from that space or that world I come from ECE where it's like you just kind of feel and go in with the vibe and look at like where the kids are at so um, I find that interesting because people when I'm talking to them they they're expecting me to talk about nature from a very factual standpoint and I'm just mm-hmm. like, no, just experience it. Like throw yeah. some seeds in the ground, see what happens. If it grows, it grows, mm-hmm. it doesn't, it's all good. So I think that's really interesting too. It is. And it's something, it's something that I, I don't know, I guess I struggle with a little bit sometimes is because like, I love science. Science is my jam. Um, and I love plant identification and I love identifying animals and identifying the holes in the ground and who made them. And I like that stuff. Right. But I also recognize that that's not everyone's jam and I can't expect it to be everyone's jam. Right. Um, and so really what it comes down, like if like, the kid's way of connecting to nature is physical activity, like adult runners who trail run, I know a lot of trail runners that like, that's their nature time. Right. If it's a rock climber, that's like, that's their connection with nature or surfers. That can be your physical connection to nature. It could be an art thing. It could be a literature thing. Like there are so many ways for people to connect to the rest of the natural world and to feel that sense of like belonging in it, but also responsibility towards it. It doesn't have to be science. And the scientific facts are really important in our day and age. Um, like we need people to understand science so that they can understand that like climate change isn't a belief. Right. <laughs> like this is not a thing. You do not have an opinion about whether or not climate change exists. You can have an opinion about like solutions for it and what we should do about it, but like you don't get to have an opinion about if it exists. And like, right. so science is important. We need to all understand that. Right. And I'm not going to shove it down someone's throat if it's not their connection. Um, I feel really strongly that people will come to eventually understanding that science and being interested in that science. If I first let them have the connect connection that comes naturally to them. Yes. Oh, yeah. I like the attunement part of it. It's like you, you have to accept the fact that everyone is going to 
be attuned to nature in their own way. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what, just from my experience and like what I loved about you and Ellen is that you guys accepted where I was at mm-hmm. and was not like, okay, here's what you need to do. Like you need to learn all this science stuff yeah. and you need to learn all the environmental ed things if you're going to do this. Instead, it was like, wow, you're doing gardening with kids. Like instead That's environmental of- ed. <laughs> and I'm like, really? Am I really in that space? But the more and more I dive into this work, the more and more I'm like, but that's how I want children to understand outdoor mm-hmm. education is that it should be, in my my opinion, should be exploratory. And I'm happy mm-hmm. like when my 12 year old is just sitting out back and reading or drawing or whatever, <laughs> instead of being like, oh my gosh, there's a bee and freaking mm-hmm. out and not going outside at all. Yeah. So yes. Yeah. And I think as a field, we're like very much moving in that direction. Yeah. And I'd say there's a lot of folks in EE that are there. Yeah. Um, there are still those like pockets that are like science. Yeah. Um, and I love them for it. We need to still have some science pockets. Um, but I think as a field, we are in general moving in that direction. And it, it makes me really happy um, to see that. Yes. So another point that keeps kind of coming back to mind There's two other things that I didn't mention early on, but when you talked about the inclusivity of your program um, and being a nonprofit in Mm -hmm. your present space, I want to talk about this because this is a big, like a huge conversation. I feel like I'm having all the time and whether (laughs) it's like in my own like work that I do through Outback and even with DRW and just always having to keep it in mind, like the consumer and people not real like at the end of the day whatever options you have you want it to be accessible and the reality is of what I see in environmental ed is that there's a lot of us doing this work but yet we Mm -hmm. all have to compete for the same like grants or funding sources so it makes it even more difficult um, because you're trying to make sure that like what you're bringing forward is inclusive, it's equitable, but at the same time, you still got to pay the bills too. How do you find that balance? And so I guess I'm speaking to like those of us that are in this space, like from a business marketing perspective and Mm -hmm. never thinking that we would ever have to think about things from that lens because our passion is very much in early childhood environmental ed, but yet we kind of like, tether these two spaces you know what I mean Mm -hmm. yeah very much so um I mean so what the first thing I started thinking about is like the the area of the mountains that I'm in here um the San Jacinto mountain range we have we have a lot of camp programs just like in our range um the last time like when programs were running we had three programs that ran some kind of like year-round outdoor education, environmental ed type of thing. Um, and then we have like probably dozens of summer camps, right? Um, and theoretically, we're all competing for the same kids. We're all competing for the same schools. We're all competing for the same money. But the truth is that we aren't. Um, because our program is unique from one of the programs here is Astro Camp. Mm-hmm. Um, up in Idlewild, and they they ha- they do have a much heavier science focus 
um, and the way their program works and operates and their, their accommodations even are very different from ours. And same with Bujum that was based down a little bit farther down the mountain from us that they, they went to national park and national forest locations near the schools wow. that they worked with. And right. those schools would then go on expedition. So they're more like expeditionary learning based. Right. Um, and those types of programs, and then our program is you come here, you come with your kids, you have to bring parent chaperones to stay in the cabins um, with the kiddos. Um, we also have a horseback riding program that every school can sign their kids up for. It's like not an extra cost, um, which is super unique in our field. Right. Um, and then teachers get to choose from like this long slate of um, focuses for their time here so they could best match like what their kids needed with what we could offer. Um, and so those three programs were very, very different. Mm -hmm. And sometimes we have schools that would like bounce back and forth between the three of them, especially for programs where like teachers tracked with kids, upgrades. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, you know, it might be that like in fifth grade, they always went to Pathfinder and in sixth grade, they always went to Astro. Like we had some schools that did that, but for the most part, like we really didn't compete for the same programs, wow. the same schools and kids because we were so different and because our differences like spread out our price points right. and spread out what level of comfortability you needed to have with being out in nature. Um, so there's like that side of things. And I think I think that's a really important thing for folks in our field to remember is that if we look at the field with a scarcity mindset of like, oh, there's only so many kids and like, I got, got to get mine. Right. That's what we'll experience. But if we look at it as more of that like abundance mindset and like understanding that every program is not for every child or every program is not for every school, then we look at it as helping kids and helping schools match the program that's best with them, where they're going to have the best experience, where kids are going to come away and be like, oh my gosh, nature's so cool. And like, that's what we want. At the end of the day, that's what we all want. Right. Um, and so, yeah, we, got, we, we have to make the bottom line, but it doesn't really matter. Like it will work out. Right. And then for like the fundraising side, I think I'm also silencing my phone. Um, <laughs> oops. Um, on the fundraising side, I think one of the things that blew my mind away is that the, the, if you look at the data for like fundraising and grants and things like that, the vast majority of fundraising dollars doesn't come from grants and foundations. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of it is coming from individual donors. Right. Um, and that's, we're really lucky here. Like we have a very strong individual donor base um, because of our history. And that's one of those funding streams that is a lot more consistent, a lot more reliable mm -hmm. than grants because one grants just like, they're wonderful. I go after a lot of grants for us, but they're a lot of work. Yeah, they are. They're a lot of work, not just to get, but also then to do the tracking and do the reporting and make sure that you're following directions correctly. Um, and so I would say, especially if someone is running like a nonprofit type of program, finding that way into individual donors and finding people who as individuals are a mission match for you um, and are like, yeah, I'd be willing to donate, you know, like $250 because that'll get a kid through a week of summer camp or a week of day camp. It's a low ball number. It's not accurate. 
Don't right. anyone go out and give your program $250 and think it's going to sponsor a whole kid. Right. Um, right. But like finding those people or even the people who are like, wow, you know, this was a really great experience. And like, you really kept prices low. I can afford to give you another $20. Right. Uh, we have a lot of parents that do that because some of our districts are great. They pay for um, the vast majority of kids outdoor education experiences with us. And so when parents register, they get through, they're paying sometimes nothing, sometimes very little. Wow. And they're like, I can afford to like donate five, 10, $15. And we have these like little donations trickle through. Um, and it's not gonna be enough to sustain us. Like we're never gonna be able to offer everything for free based upon those small donations, but it helps. Right. And those are the things that we've been focusing really hard on is like cultivating those relationships and cultivating relationships with alumni once you have alumni um, and the people in your community and the other community groups you have. Like if there's a women's group mm -hmm. in your community, they might well be interested in help support you. Right. Um, if you have, you know, a, a Lions Club, um, they might well be interested in helping to support you um, or helping host a fundraiser for you. You don't have to do it all by yourself. You can right. find other organizations that have, that believe in your mission and ask them to help you fundraise. Even if they can't give you money, they might have someone on their team who's like, oh yeah, I've run a ton of fundraising events. And like, I can, I can throw this together for you in like a week. And you're like, thank God, cause it's going to take me six months. Right. Um, <laughs> Like you can do that type of thing. You can go to your local pizza place and run the type of programs where it's like, yeah, if you bring in this flyer or this thing on your phone, you know, 20% of the profit, profits go to the program. Um, I think just little things like that and folks not feeling the pressure to focus on the big funders. Like those big funders are great and they're wonderful and they're it's hard. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think we should be expecting that to happen. It's wonderful when they do, especially because big grants tend to be so like program-based. They tend to right. not really fund like operational costs. And we're like, yo, I need operational costs right, right now. <laughs> like right. not starting another new program. I need operational costs. Right. Um, and that's where donors are wonderful and focusing on those people and those relationships. And I think that's something that early childhood educators are really good at, mm -hmm. really good at relationships. Yeah. And finding people to donate money to you as an individual is all about relationships. It's all about getting to know that person and getting to know what, what they like and what they really wanna support and what their passions are. And then looking at what you have and like finding that match. It's like finding the match for a little Timmy in the classroom that you're like, right. He doesn't like the art table. <laughs> doesn't really like the reading center, like blocks. Right. This is this is a skill we have as early childhood educators. We know how to get to know people and then make matches. Um, and that's the exact same like skill set and muscle group that you use when you're working with donors. Yes. I I think it's this is a great segue into the fact that you're like okay, so I may not be working with children in this capacity, but yet I'm doing marketing and development. But I, I think you bring up such a good point, like as early childhood educators, like that's something we have to do, especially if you start diving into like 
early childhood special ed, like now you really have to individualize things. Mm-hmm. So what are some similarities that you feel like you're finding um, in a development role? And do you feel like you're still, even though you may not be working with kids directly, do you still feel like you're impacting them like in a more indirect type of way? Oh, hundred percent. Yeah. Um, in that there's definitely the very close indirect connection in the fact that a lot of our fundraising efforts go towards summer camp scholarships. Mm-hmm. Um, and we have, we have a very strong relationship with boys and girls clubs in the area around us um, from our history with them. And those summer camp scholarships that people donate, we then, we use them for individual campers a lot, but the vast majority of our campers come from boys and girls clubs. And so we turn around, we offer basically like a discounted price to campers who attend with the boys and girls club. And then those girls and girls clubs have also been fundraising. They're able to knock that price down even farther. And so then we have kids who are able to attend who are maybe paying like 20, 30, $50 um, to come up to summer camp for six days. Wow. Right. And it's amazing. These are kids who literally would not have this experience otherwise. Um, And uh, many of those kids, they come back year after year. Um, Some of them don't. Sometimes it's a one-off. They get one summer to go to summer camp. Wow. Um, And for so many of those kids, it doesn't happen without fundraising. Mm-hmm. It doesn't happen without building relationship with, relationships with those donors. Um, and then even just on the side of like managing grants, like our outdoor education program, oh my gosh, their administration team was like on point with grants. Um, they were like finding small local grants and applying for very specific things and getting the grants. And so then it was my job to like, do all the follow-up and make sure we did all the things and took the pictures and wrote the reports and remind them of when they needed to go, go do the thing. Right. Um, but because of that, even though it's really hard to remember when I'm like sending an email and being like, hey, just a reminder that luncheon's coming up in a week, like <laughs> nothing to do with children. Right. Um, but when those kids and their naturalists have an iPad, mm-hmm. they can take out with them to collect data to do citizen science and feel like real scientists and get really excited about what they're doing and what they're finding and what they're looking for. That happened because of that grant. Right. And so like there is, there is this very direct connection. I do have to look for it a lot um, and remind myself because there are days when I'm in the office and I'm like, I don't want to look at the computer screen. But like it's it's still there. Or sometimes with social media, that's why our Facebook page will somehow at times have social media posts that are like, you could participate in like international puddle jumping day or something like that. Because I'm like, Meh. you have some parents who follow us on Facebook. Like maybe they'll take their kids puddle jumping. Like that's great. Do that. Yeah. <laughs> um, so they're little things. It's definitely not the type of work where I get to see I get to see kids. Right. Things every day. Um, but I do, I do think it directly impacts them. Um, and also because I, I very much subscribe to um, the ecological theory of child development from, is it Yuri Broffenbrenner? 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, laughing. You're laughing bitter. Um, that you have the like circle at the center and like this is your kid. And then you have these concentric circles growing out from it that you have like the family right around them. And then you have your neighborhood and you have, you slowly grow out around it. And I really deeply believe that it's important for us in environmental education to look at ourselves that way, Mm -hmm. that because we are very forward focused, we're very focused on like wanting to have a future for me in this case in California of all youth having access to high quality outdoor and environmental education experiences on a regular basis. Like I want that for everyone. Yes. And that means that all of those concentric circles have to know what that is. And they, there needs to be like some, some quantity of people in it who value it. Right. And so that means if I'm educating a lawyer about the benefits of nature play, I'm helping towards that future. And if I'm helping to educate like a school principal about why it's important for kids to have free play. Like I'm helping towards that future. Um, and that, that, that model, the ecological model of child development, I think is really where I just keep finding myself plugging back into and being like, okay, like what, which concentric circle is this? Because they all eventually connect back to our kids and our youth. That is so spot on. So spot on. So before we conclude, um, is there anything that you would like to say to, to anyone um, interested in doing good environmental education? Um, it could be an inspirational quote. It could be anything, whatever you want to say. I think, I think the thing that I would say is, and I'm not the first person to say this, and I can't remember, I've been racking my brain trying to remember who said this, um, but all education is environmental education. And so wherever you find yourself in the education, um, you know, a wheelhouse, you're doing environmental education, whether you know it or not, because the things we talk about and the things that we don't talk about tell our students what is and what is not important. Um, and what we place in our classrooms and what we don't place in our classrooms communicates to our students what is and what is not important and what is and is not worth valuing. And so realize that you're already doing environmental education. You just need to decide what you want your message to be. Ooh. And if you want your message to be a value of the environment and of being a part of the natural world, or if you want your message to be that the environment is not important, we don't include it in our learning, and you are completely separate from the natural world. Like Those are kind of your choices. And then you can start building yourself in whichever direction you want to be in. And I obviously fall in the camp of like, the environment is important and we are a part of the natural world. Um, And so then that's why like, I want plants in my classroom and I want at least a fish. Um, I want windows. I want to go outside to learn things when we can. Um, I want to talk about our time outdoors and I want to give kids time to play outside. Um, Just realizing that will start to change the work that you do um, and like lead you in the direction of doing what we more formally call environmental education. Yes. So how can people find you and the work that you're doing? Um, People can find me a few different ways. You can check out um, pathfinderranch.com. 
is the website for the organization I work for right now. Um, I also sit on the board for the Association for Environmental and Outdoor Education, AOE. It's the California um, affiliate for NAAEE. And my email for that is Sarah, I have an H, S-A-R-A-H, at AEOE.org. Um, and people are welcome to email me there. Um, and AEOE also has a brand new website, thanks to our executive director. So if you wanted to check out what AEOE is doing in California, it's AEOE.org. Actually, I'm going to check that really fast because I'm panicking that it's actually .com. No, it's .org. I was right. Yes. Sorry, AEOE team. Sorry for panicking about that. Um, yeah, it's AEOE.org. Um, and yeah, they're doing wonderful work. I'm... And we're, we're working on growing who we serve um, because much like other environmental educators across the country, um, we very much believe and know that EE is bigger than environmental outdoor schools, which is who we've traditionally served. Um, and we're working on doing a better job of serving formal educators and early childhood educators and folks in like museum and park programs, um, those types of folks and slowly, slowly growing our reach and who we're able to serve. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. Well, thank you so much, Sarah, for coming on today. I cannot wait till this comes out because there's just so much like wealth of knowledge that you just shared. And we'll have to do this again at yeah. some point, you know. Oh, that reminds me, I would be remiss, <laughs> wrote myself a note. Um, if in a, in a plug of shameless promotion for AOE, if this comes out at all before November 21st, um, for AOE, we've been doing um, a series of e-workshops, mm -hmm. um, of webinar type workshops um, throughout the fall instead of our fall conference. And I'm helping to host one on November 21st, Saturday um, on early childhood in the outdoors. So mm -hmm. if folks are interested in that, it'll be 9 a.m. to 11 a.m. Pacific Standard Time. Um, and all the info and stuff is on AEOE.org. Um, and I'd love to see more folks there. We tried to do like an actual workshop in March and then the Rona hit and we were like, well, <laughs> not doing that. So we're going to have two hours online instead. Right. Right on. Well, yeah. Thank you so much. And I will try to make sure that I'm there. So <gasps> that would be wonderful. Oh my goodness. <laughs> all right. Hey, thank you, Ms. D. Thank you.